HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a better egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, and welcome to The Line. One year. It's been one year since the start of the pandemic. At first, the discussions were about days or weeks, definitely not months. How long could this really last, we all asked each other. The bustling downtown work centers of our cities turned to ghost towns as closets, kitchen tables, and basements became offices, as everyone who was expecting a brief two-week break from normal life settled into this new reality. In those first days, restaurants pickled everything in sight to hold over what could be saved. The rest was sent home with staff, leftover inventory filling employee and community fridges. Millions of workers let go or furloughed. And restaurants are always the first to give, so no one was surprised when restaurants opened up their doors, giving away food to neighbors and the needy. And after those first tumultuous months, there was still no help in sight from the government. Weddings, corporate and sporting events were canceled and all called off. Caterers, bakers, bars, venues, event planners saw their calendars get wiped clean and revenue disappear. And the hospitals continued to fill. The week stretched to months and time and time again it was restaurants stepping up. There were meal boxes to the hospitals, to first responders, a thank you drop off often sponsored by restaurant customers delivered to the heroes at the end of a 12-hour shift. There were chefs cooking free buffets at protests, fundraiser cookouts, and restaurants and catering companies packing and delivering grocery kits for families with no income. 
Restaurants were converted into food banks, which stretched with lines for the jobless, all while a heartless leadership offered no response and no assistance. Furloughed staff frantically tried to enroll for unemployment, while owners desperately tried to obtain PPP. GoFundMes for staff in need. GoFundMes for funerals no one could afford. Too many funerals. The end of thousands of businesses. Fortunes lost and dreams ruined. And the fate of an entire industry and its millions of workers still precarious and unknown one year in. As of the airing of this episode, there have been over 530,000 U.S. deaths from COVID. The last year cannot truly be encapsulated in one episode of a podcast. But here, in their own words, members of the hospitality industry speak about a year of COVID, a year of inexplicable loss, a year of immeasurable hardship, and what has felt to me like unending chaos. On this special two-part episode of The Line, you'll hear from people all over the country in their own words. I ask them to record themselves wherever they may be, speaking about how things have changed since mid-March of 2020. First off, you'll hear from Ashley Shanty, speaking from Asheville, North Carolina. For me, COVID is certainly leaving its lasting mark uh, on our typically resilient industry. I mean, in the state of North Carolina alone, well over 100,000 restaurants remain closed even still. And a lot of those establishments might never open again. Uh, With hospitality being one of our state's largest industries, this has obviously displaced so many of our citizens and, and we're facing the reality of that. Look, a lot of these folks might never come back from this. And I think that, you know, possessing the ability even just to pivot as a business was a privilege that, that some owners had, but most just didn't. And, and the government's response to COVID, to me, was predictable. I mean, the rich became richer. And so what do you do if you don't have financial backers? How do you navigate not having investors to turn to? I think this divide of classism, it's it's certainly always existed in food spaces. And I think now it's as undeniable as, as the racial divide that we've grappled with for so long. It's such a discouraging thought for me uh, as an upcoming restaurant owner. I often think in an industry uh, that I've invested more sweat equity into that can be measured. If things went to shit, who would I turn to? Who could I rely on? Is is my face a symbol of tokenism simply to add value to an organization? Do black lives still matter now that the dust from last year has settled? And those are, are just some of the hard realities uh, that COVID forced me to slow down and face. I had to to swallow that truth pill and um, one of the things that I am hopeful for, though, is is just the the idea of food as community and and chefs as as those community leaders. I'm I'm hopeful for that to become even more apparent. I look forward to seeing more chefs on Capitol Hill fighting for the rights of small business and the hourly worker and and us familiarizing ourselves with law so that we can fight to change the ones that just don't serve us. 
being a chef, I say this all the time, being a chef is complex and there's there's so much work to do outside of the kitchen just as there is in the kitchen. And I mean, we, we've we got to be forward thinking and develop that range as chefs. And And what does that look like? To me, I mean, that means addressing hunger as a community problem and and creating spaces where food is also approachable and and affordable and healthy and building these micro communities where we're all working towards the goal of a better, more fair, safer industry. Our passion is what brought us here and it's what is going to keep us. This is Alexandra Reich. Uh, I run uh, some restaurants with my husband, Eder Montero, and we're a year into COVID, almost exactly. Um, When we closed our restaurants, we most certainly thought that it would be for about three weeks. Um, And in retrospect, that's just so naive. I think that it was like an accommodation so that we didn't all just have complete and utter utter (laughs) nervous breakdowns. Um, and the clarity um, that uh, we came to have about, you know, that moment in particular, uh, it just seems like like the way that you deal with, with anything that's, you know, incredibly uh, shocking and debilitating, which is, you know, first disbelief, and then uh, you come to understand your situation and um, hopefully... Uh, you don't implode. And for me, the things that have kept me um, focused on um, some type of uh, recovery have been my children, um, my staff, and uh, my customers. And then, you know, my incredible curiosity and devotion to this artistic endeavor because uh, for me, that's what it is. I know that that's not necessarily the case for everybody, but I'm a creative person. This is how I express myself. And it is the reason why I wouldn't just like fold it up and leave it, aside from the fact that I actually have no other skills um, that I have found value for. Um, So I guess for us in the beginning, not getting the first round of PPPs was really devastating. That said, we were in a much better footing than other people, but our lives were extraordinarily expensive and we had to kind of contract the way that we were living um, immediately. And then going forward, um, it meant a lot of housekeeping um, and rethinking. And then when we finally did qualify for the uh, second round of PPPs, Um, that allowed us to be a little more focused on like tactical issues of, you know, how we would come back, what we would bring back, what we were doing wrong, what could be enhanced, what could be better. um, And who, who did we want to show up for? And um, I guess one of the biggest learning uh, curves of this whole pandemic has been the, who do you, who and how do you show up for people? Uh, I always had a much more sort of transactional relationship with my staff uh, and with my community, and I was fine with that. Uh, It felt like I was meeting my obligations, and then suddenly you can't 
you can both put a price on your commitments and obligations, but you also, um, you're not earning towards meeting those commitments. You're actually like hustling for that money so that you can pay these people so that they can live and so that you can live. And it, it felt, it felt like the way that most people live actually I got to have dinner with my kids and I also got to have like a ton of financial worry that I, I really hadn't lived in a while because we had been smart and successful about how we um, rolled out our businesses. We had been responsible, uh, clever and uh, well-practicing business owners. And so we, you know, it's hard not to feel scorned <laughs> for doing things right and for not being instruments of harm and for not, um, you know, doing all the wrong things. And, um, and so now here we are and we're about to reopen and we still want to tell all these stories. I've never wanted to tell the stories of the ways that I have felt, um, erased. I always just wanted to make space for myself to express these ideas that come from that feeling, but but they are there's so much more and uh just want to conclude with so much uh sort of gratitude that we're still here that we're vaccinated that somebody realized that we should get vaccinated uh before others it's been incredibly um rewarding to see my staff get vaccinated um i feel like this is a I don't want to say a thankless job, but it's a job, you know, that's not, you know, very well compensated. And for once, <laughs> I feel like there was like this little bit of privilege. And I know it's just a response to the reality of being a cook and what that means. But it felt like love to get that vaccine. Thank you. I'm Angela Garbitz and I own Goldenrod Pastries in Lincoln, Nebraska. I have had my original pastry shop uh, since 2015 and I opened my second location, primarily a coffee shop with pastries at the beginning of March 2020. I think it was the second week of March. So we were open for about 10 days before we had to shut down. Um, at the beginning of March, I doubled my team. I had 11 employees and I went to 20 and then three weeks later, I furloughed all but six and I've always been like employees first and I at the beginning of you know when COVID was hitting and I saw people you know furloughing their teams I said I won't ne I'll never have to do that I have saved enough money that I'll be able to pay them and you know that's when we thought that maybe it'd be like one or two pay periods and I was like this will be no problem I will never have to do this to my employees and I remember the night before I shut down um, it was the most heartbreaking night of my life. And it, it was really sad. It was not so much about shutting down my businesses. It was that I couldn't help my staff. And you know, a lot of people have been with me f since I opened five, three, four or five years. And to tell them that I couldn't help them was really, really hard. And 
So we shut down both the businesses. I let, I kept about six people who were a core team and we built an e-commerce site in about 12 hours and started selling pastries and merchandise online that we could ship across the country. And when we kind of reopened at the end of May for takeout only at my original location, I remember the hardest thing was to tell my staff that that we were taking the appropriate safety measures and that they would be safe. And I knew that the only way I could protect them, the best way that I could protect them was to keep them employed. And I told them that from the beginning, I said, you know, nobody's helping us. The government is not helping us. And so the best thing that I can do for you is to keep you employed and to keep you employed, I have to keep you safe. And the only way we can do that is if you make responsible decisions outside of work. So I kept telling them that over and over again. And luckily they did stay pretty responsible outside of work, but it was a terrible feeling. I didn't know um, if they were actually safe at work. And I found out in the middle of April that I was pregnant and I didn't know if I was safe. And so I had to go into work every day, putting on like a really tough face, a strong face and just telling them we're fine. We're doing everything right. But we really didn't know very much about um, the virus at that point. We didn't know enough to really know what was safe and how effective masks really were. And my kitchen is really, really small. My whole store is really small. So are these people working too closely together? Are they going to get sick because they're so close to each other? I have a lot of immunocompromised people on staff and it was terrifying. And I really care about the people that I work with. And I was just scared every single day for them. But I just kept telling them, I want to help you. I want to protect you. And the best thing I can do is to keep you paid. On uh, The really good unemployment benefits, I think, got ended a month early in Nebraska because the governor here, um, he's very close with Donald Trump. And so he makes a lot of decisions uh, based on what the former president thought was the right thing to do. There's never been any statewide mask mandates. There's never been um, any really safe DHM. Um, you know, churches reopen. Restaurants have been at full capacity for a long time for indoor seating. Um, our mayor in Lincoln here instituted a mask mandate, and the governor said that we wouldn't be getting any federal funding if we needed it because of the mask mandate. So we were just really like put out at sea and I'll never forget the way that that felt. And we're just business owners and it shouldn't fall to us to make these decisions. It shouldn't fall to us to have to tell customers that they have to wear a mask, that before there was a mask mandate um, as a private business, I chose to institute a mask mandate because I knew it was the right thing to do. But my customers said some customers said, you know, this isn't the law. I'm not going to come in or I'm not going to wear a mask. And my my employees were terrified. I was terrified. But what are you going to do? And there are still people that come in who, you know, try to bully us. And it's terrifying. And we just have to stand up to them. And, you know, the worst feeling in the world is to try to remember where the panic button is just over somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask. And I have to say, I will never forget the way that it felt to tell so many people that, they didn't have a job, that I didn't know if they would get their job back, and that I couldn't really keep them safe. And that's what sticks with me from the past year, that overwhelming feeling of, you know, a loss of control, a loss of keeping people safe that you care about, and knowing that nobody else is going to keep you safe.
We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest-growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can start with a free sample. Just head to ju.st/hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st/hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andreas calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says it's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st. Welcome back to the line. COVID has dominated our lives and shaped all our interactions and decisions for the past year. The hospitality industry has been one of the hardest hit, with millions of jobs lost and thousands of lives lost. In the second half of this episode, more voices from around the country discuss their own personal journey of one year of COVID. The next voice you'll hear is Chef Matthew Bell, the executive chef of Gray and Dudley inside the 21C Hotel in Nashville. And I guess October of, of 2019, I started considering uh, selling the restaurant I owned in Little Rock, Arkansas called South on Main. Uh, I had opened South on Main in 2013 and uh, you know, speaking candidly, um, my wife and I were, were just, were just tired. We really couldn't, uh, see a way to continue, uh, operating a business with the two of us. Um, you know, so, so many of my friends do it and they can confirm, you know, the, the stress that it is to be a small business owner. So I had, um, you know, uh, received word about a job here at the 21C in Nashville and uh, had started making plans to uh, apply for the job and, and had decided early in that process that uh, whether or not I got the job, I was going to uh, be selling self on main regardless. Uh, it was honestly one of the, the hardest decisions I've ever made. And my wife, Amy and I, uh, really, really had to think hard about uh, what we wanted to do for the business and for ourselves and uh, for our futures. Uh, honestly, as a as a couple owning a business, um, we really believed that the time had had come for us to make a change. So I uh, ended up uh, accepting the job in December, and uh, we had found a buyer for our restaurant and. 
had actually closed on the sale of the restaurant at the beginning of February. And I moved to Nashville to to start at the hotel on February 10th. I believe my first official day was February 11th. I, you know, as quickly as I got hired six weeks later, we closed the hotel due to COVID and I went into furlough and we uh, went back to Arkansas and made our final move here to Nashville. I, I think for me, my, my struggle daily is the, the relief of not owning a business during these times and then a huge amount of uh, almost survivor's guilt for for not being in that position with so many of my friends. Uh, you know, I can't I can't think of a city that I don't go to where I I know a friend with the restaurant who is reinventing themselves daily, figuring out ways to deliver sidewalk dining, outdoor dining, um, you know, fighting with delivery apps, and I you know, don't, I am not free of struggles, uh, here, you know, we, we have a a business to run here just as any, but, um, it not being owned by me is a a very different feeling. And it's also a feeling I, I haven't had, I haven't worked for anyone in the last seven years. And it's very, it's a very different feeling, um, possibly one of relief, but also, uh, definitely comes with a, a ton of guilt um, and uh, just so much empathy for my friends out there. My heart is with all of the independent business owners, all of the independent restaurant owners, the servers, the mass dishwashers. Um, my heart's with all of you, and I appreciate the time again to to talk about this and and wish everyone out there the best for 2021 and look forward to seeing what we can do when we welcome diners back full time. Thank you. The last voice you'll hear on today's episode is Julie Horowitz, who co-owned several New York restaurants along with her brother. I owned Duck's Eatery um, in the East Village, and we uh, closed for good um, in early November. Um, this would have been our ninth year in business, um, and uh, you know we we stayed open as long as we could. Right before the initial shutdowns, our last day was I believe it was March seventeenth, um, and of course we ended on a day doing a pop up. Um, of our other recently closed restaurant, Harry and Ida's. Um, we had big plans for Ducks this year. Uh, we were planning on merging the two concepts, and um, and of course everything kind of went to shit. <laughs> um, you know, I- I'm feeling so many different things. Um, part of me feels guilty for even saying this out loud, but... Um, a huge part of my life is more stable and healthier. Um, the restaurant industry is all I've really ever known in my adult life. And, um, and to not be working every day and every night and, um, have to worry about is a health inspector going to come today? Is, you know, somebody going to get drunk and belligerent at my bar today? Um, yeah, just, 
is is my staff going to show up today? Although, honestly, I've had um, a really, really wonderful staff, and that's that's maybe the hardest part of this past year is is having to part with everybody. Um, but it's just a, a huge combination of things. So, you know, on top of feeling um, kind of relieved that I don't have to deal with this bullshit anymore, I'm also kind of battling with this, like, lack of purpose um this is really all I've ever done and what next um I'm hesitant to get back into the restaurant industry um it just feels like the fight has been so great for so many years and now there is no fight um there's nothing to fight against this is unmanageable as a small business um and part of me kind of wants to just wait it out until the system breaks down and rebuilds itself. Um, and and only then, when it's healthier and more sustainable and more equitable, does it feel like the right time to dive in. Um, as soon as we closed, um, we set up a GoFundMe for uh, the employees that weren't eligible for uh, unemployment benefits. And we surpassed our goal in I think less than 36 hours. Um, It's just been unbelievable to feel that kind of support from our community, especially when so many other businesses, you know, you almost numb out to these messages now for, for GoFundMes and for these heartfelt closing posts. Um, I've almost become desensitized to to it because it's, it's happening so frequently around us. But despite that, um, our community really came out in numbers and um and especially when we closed for the last time on I think it was November 7th we did one final brisket night service um and I think I I was sort of expecting people to come out of the woodwork but not quite to the extent that they did um and it was stressful and emotional and you know we had shut down essentially all of our reservation systems at that point because we, we hadn't been using them all year. Um, we had no real POS system, no, no kitchen printers. Uh, we were really back to basics from when we opened in 2012 and everything was pen and paper. Um, and, uh, and it was a total shit show. Um, and it was just like the best kind of shit show. And I'm so grateful that I had that final service to go out on, um, even though I'll, I'll probably have service nightmares about it for the rest of my life. And I just, I hope for the future that enough people are now aware of this and made aware of just how many jobs this has affected and how much this affects not only our community, but our economy, um, that this is a chance to break it down and rebuild it in a more sound way. Um, and it makes me optimistic. I feel like it's going to get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. And, uh, and I just can't wait to sit at a damn bar again. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Line. I'll be back next week with another episode featuring more reflections of one year into the COVID pandemic. If you have comments, questions, or would like to speak to me about your own experience during COVID, you can email me at the line at heritageradionetwork.org. 
The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.